Hey, everybody. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to Beekeeping for Newbies, episode 16. This is Jeff, and thank you so much for taking the time to tune in today. Uh, as always, if you have any questions, don't hesitate to drop me an email, jeff at beekeepingfornewbies.com. You know, my goal is to provide you with the absolutely most relevant, accurate, useful information possible. And uh, if there's something you need, by all means, let me know. So I am broadcasting live today from the apiary. I have the windows open in the RV. It is kind of humid, but that's still better than having the generator on. I can hear the birds chirping in the back, so that's pretty cool and exciting. I think you can hear them coming in through the mic as well, but can't, you know, can't do much about that, but it's great to great to be here enjoying it even though it's humid and muggy and raining and all of that. So I want to jump in and talk about what's new and what's been going on. You know, this this episode I primarily geared towards just some apiary updates, miscellaneous things, as well as um, talking about some emails I've got from listeners. And I don't have a lot of very specific content today, but we'll try and catch back up with that. I got other things teed up and things I'm looking at for later on in the uh, in the month. So we will definitely get back to a regularly scheduled educational session here in the coming weeks. So right now at the apiary, I know you've probably heard me mention several times around the some of the big obstacles here, right? And and the biggest kind of you know long pole in the tent for for my goals and efforts here is this massive brush pile from the land being cleared almost a year ago. So I was out there yesterday. I was outside and I'm I'm watching the weather. There were some thunderstorms in the area. Everything was pretty dry. We did have some recent kind of light rain, but the wood is so dry. And I thought, this is it. This is the chance right here. So I fired that beast up. I got this uh, Harbor Freight like torch thing that hooks up to a 20 pound propane cylinder. And I know that you can put diesel and kerosene. You can throw all these things on there, but I just, out of an abundance of caution, I just, I really was waiting for the ideal conditions and I think I found them. So I fired up that torch, and I just went around, hit a couple of small spots, let it get going a little bit, hit another one, let it get going. And then everything was fine. It was going great, well under control. And I said, oh, well, I'll go ahead and put a little bit more in this one area off to the side. And then it was like it just took off. It went ballistic. It went nuts. I mean, there was, I don't know, like 30, 40-foot, you know, flames. It was it was pretty, pretty awesome. But... The beauty of the whole thing was that the uh, the rain really came in. We had a lot of rain last night, and that was the only reason I did this because I knew that by having all of that rain coming in that the core of the fire would be pretty hot, but the um, you know, there wouldn't be enough rain to put the fire out, but it would definitely keep any embers that were drifting up into the air from, from starting fires and extending into the woods and potentially any other places that might cause damage. So... We got about, I would say, more than half of the pile burned down right now. I, um, I went out this morning. It was pouring down rain. I really did not want to, uh, to be out there just doing other work. So I jumped in the Bobcat, kind of reorganized the pile, pushed everything in. And uh, like I said, we're about half of what it used to be. Things are burned down nicely. The next burn, I think, will be even easier. You know, we're one step closer to getting that area graded down because that is literally exactly where I want to put the bees. So if conditions are not favorable, I would say over the next two to three weeks, I'm just going to go in with the Bobcat, put a grapple bucket on, and I'm just going to move everything off to the side. I'll just completely get it out of that area, burn it in small piles later, like whatever I got to do. 
I'm just, I can't wait anymore. I've got to get my, my colonies, my, my hives need to get set up here and it has to happen sooner than later. Status on, on some of my colonies here. I've, I haven't really had anything exceptional or eventful or exciting happen with, with mine recently. Uh, I did have a deal worked out since this was the year that I'm going commercial. I had a deal worked out with another apiary, another commercial guy uh, we have multiple deals worked out, and it pretty much looks like none of them are going to pan out. Uh, it's a real shame. I mean, he's a nice guy. I like him personally. Uh, I think that there are, are some challenges on the work ethic side of things. If I had known that things were going to go the way they did, I would have just set up a queen-rearing colony this year, and I would have just made, you know, 100 of my own queens and gone that route. But, you know, it is what it is. You know, we'll keep driving forward, and uh, it'll set me back about a year but I've got enough to keep me busy. But the colonies that I do still have, they are doing well. I've, you know, I've been, uh, actually I'm getting ready to get the feeders set up and start, you know, supplemental feeding them since we are kind of knocking on the door to the dearth. I really, really want them down here because I feel like there's a lot more better forage down here and they would probably be okay for now. But like I said, I've had, I've had the bear come through here and destroy colonies before. And I'm really trying not to do that again. So uh, I don't know. I got to figure that out. But I think I did have one colony that had a drone layer queen, and I replaced her. I got that taken care of. I had another that was a split, and I added, I had added some eggs a few, almost like a month ago, uh, just a couple pieces of comb that had some new eggs on them. They did nothing with them, which kind of surprised me. So I dropped a frame in the same colony with young larvae and eggs, and I'm hoping that they have made a couple of queen cells. I uh, was, was intending to do an inspection a couple of days ago. It was rainy. I tried to do it yesterday. It was rainy. And I just, I couldn't wait. So I am hoping that the queen cells that would potentially be in a couple of my colonies right now will still be there when I get back so that I can make a split. And I've got some other plans here I'll talk about shortly with another one. Now, if you uh, remember, let's see, I guess it was a few weeks back, I had received an email from Jesse asking about mice and kind of how we, how we address issues with mice in the colonies. And I, I had told him before, and I'll just kind of bring it up again in case somebody hasn't listened to that episode. You know, I have not had issues with mice in any of my colonies ever. I think I really attribute that to mostly being kind of a suburban beekeeper. I believe this may be more of an issue out here in a rural area. And um, what I had told him and everybody, you know, on the podcast was to go ahead and get some hardware cloth and uh, to fabricate one from that. I kind of described it, but in order to kind of just give a visual, I took a video today. It's only like a 38 second video, but it shows the mouse guard and what it looks like. I posted that. You know, it's cheap. It's easy to do. And it's, you know, you don't have to go, you know, pay somebody money for, for something that you can do on your own. And I took a look at it and it was, you know, the full width of the, the bottom board. And it was three inches high, so I just kind of bent it right at about the one and a half inch point. So that'll be uh, that'll be a good thing to check out if you're interested in that. I'm also going to be doing a video here shortly on a, a vented top. I started kind of gathering my thoughts on you know things around cooling the bees and challenges that you face in the summertime with you know excessive heat. And what you can do to help out with that. And I, and I came across this a couple of years ago. I mean, it's probably more like six or seven years ago. I was trying to figure out, 
like tips and tricks for overwintering. I had lost something like, I think that year I lost like four out of five colonies and I just didn't understand. I was probably three or maybe three years into beekeeping. I had no mentor. I just, you know, like I told you before, I just did it myself. And I, I was trying to figure out why I kept losing, you know, all these colonies over the winter. I remember opening one in, in like March, April timeframe and it was completely soaking wet. There was mildew on the inner cover. It was pretty gross. And I kind of was searching around trying to figure out, you know, what, what's the problem? Like, why was there so much moisture in here? And I'm, I'm definitely going to talk about this in much greater detail when we get into winterization. But, at, you know, at a real high level here, during the wintertime, you know, the, the cluster of bees will stay probably right in that 95-degree temperature range. And as just they themselves being there and creating that heat, there's going to be some, of course, some moisture and humidity associated with that, but there's the heat on the inside, the cool on the outside, and, and getting some condensation inside the colony is not unusual. It's kind of how you deal with that, with the appropriate ventilation. The, the general rule, though, if those bees get wet, they're going to die. It's a simple, a wet bee is a dead bee. I mean, you just, you've got to, you got to keep that, the inside of that hive as dry as possible. And like I said, we'll go into all the details of that later on, but I am going to create a video talking about this vented uh, top cover because I've been using them for years. I've had tremendous success with them. They're easy to make. If you want to make one, there is, there's only one company I found online that, that sold the one that I'm going to show you. I really like it. I'll try and track down an old receipt from them. I just make my own now, but it's pretty cool and it's definitely worth looking at. Now, I recognize that I completely dropped the ball on the other videos I promised for the you know sugar syrup feeders and the pollen feeders. I can sit here and give you a bunch of excuses, but the reality is I just I was doing some other things, didn't get to it. There, there's actually a, a company that I'd love to throw under the bus right now and kind of vent about that, but I don't want to be that guy. So I was tied up with some some challenges last week that kind of precluded me from getting those done, but I will, on my way home from the apiary, I will stop by, get the necessary parts. We'll get that video up this week, uh, probably closer towards the end of the week, and, uh, and then you'll kind of know how to make those. And as always, if you have any questions or you miss something or I miss something, let me know. We'll, we'll get it squared away. And the last thing I would have to update, I would say here at the apiary, which is maybe the, the probably the best news, the most exciting anyway, uh, I had a chance this past week to meet up with my home builder. I've been talking with him, you know, on and off for probably about a year, year and a half now. Uh, I was able to catch up with him, and you know, we're ready to get things rolling along to put a house down here. So that's pretty exciting. I am really looking forward to that. I mean, I love the RV; it's awesome. I, but I prefer it like on the road. Like I want to take it somewhere and go see something and go do something, and just using it as like a temporary house is kind of weird. I don't know. It works and I'm happy to have it. I mean, you know, running water and the toilet and, you know, all those amenities are awesome, but there's just so much work to be done and I need access to tools and access to things. You just need to have a house. So we're going to probably be breaking ground like in the, you know, early to mid August timeframe, looking at about a six month turnaround. So that is uh, good news. I'll keep you updated on that. With that, I'm going to go ahead and take a quick break and uh, we'll be right back. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. 
Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. All right. Thank you for staying with us here. And next is a couple of listener emails I'm going to run through. The first one is a gentleman who's, who's local to me. Uh, he reached out. He kind of told me where he was living. He was like, hey, I've got a, got a couple of colonies. You know, some of them, I think he said he had three. Two of them are really strong. Thinking about doing some splits. Was asking about, you know, my feedback. He was really concerned about being able to find drones in his area to, you know, to mate with the Virgin Queen. And, um, you know, just, just kind of was looking for some thoughts and ideas around it. My, my personal feeling, you know, and again, there's always, there's a lot you can do with beehives. I mean, people will tell you, you know, if you look at some of the old school beekeepers and things, you know, that, that one saying, you know, most problems in a beehive can be solved by either adding something or taking something away, right? There's, there's always a way to figure something out if you, if you really want to do it or you want to make it happen. But there are certain things that just work really, really well or much, much better under a given set of circumstances. And what I mean specifically is think about the time of year when bees are swarming, you've got a big nectar flow. You've got tons of pollen and nectar coming into the hive. And now they're making queen cells. They've got tons of resources and they're making, you know, nice, big, healthy queens. Like that's the ideal scenario at this time of year, particularly where I am, as we go into, you know, mid June, our pollen's pretty much drying up. We're not going to see much of anything really, I would say until early to mid August. So we have almost two months where all of our colonies have to survive off of whatever they gathered in the spring. And hopefully the, the fall nectar flow is enough to get them through, you know, through the winter, which typically in my experience is not without some level of supplemental feeding. So I very, very rarely will attempt to do a split this late in the year or this late in the season, unless I'm from day one planning to supplemental feed. Right. That, that's the real trick. As long as they've got access to, to the nectar and some, and some pollen substitute or they're getting, still getting pollen from somewhere, that they'll be okay. They can still make an emergency queen cell. Um, of course, we've, all, we've already talked about, you know, several times around the challenges with that. Right, You're 40 to 45 days probably from when the egg that is going to become the queen is laid to when you have your first new worker is basically about six weeks. You know, Six weeks of literally nothing new coming into the colony. So we've talked about how disruptive that can be and, and some of the challenges with that. But if you are, are providing enough nurse bees and you're providing all the resources they need, they can continue to make a new queen and, and they can continue to have that queen, you know, raising more brood. The colony will raise more brood if they have all the resources they need. It's just not as easy as it is during the flow. So my general advice is, if you have a colony that's good, strong, and healthy right now, great. Make sure it has plenty of space and room and, and kind of lock it down. You may even want to start supplemental feeding a little bit just to keep them, you know, fed through the, the dearth and just be happy to have a, a living, you know, healthy colony. Now, that being said, like I said, I'm getting ready to do some queen rearing myself. It's not because I particularly want to. It's more out of necessity than out of, out of uh, you know, it's not an elective decision like, hey, why don't we just raise some queens now? I'm, I'm really in a bind because of my situation with, with that agreement that has not quite worked out. So I'm going to be doing it. But uh, again, just as long as you're on top of things and you're, and you're paying attention and you're giving them all the resources they need, they can still produce queens and, and still produce a, um, 
you know, a viable colony that can overwinter. Yeah, you still have enough time. Now, the specific thing that this gentleman, Wes, and I had discussed was um, the challenges around finding drones in his area, though. He was concerned that, you know, geez, he's a few miles away from what he knows to be the nearest other beekeeper. He wants that genetic diversity to make sure that, you know, you don't have, you know, inbred, you know, the, your queen's drones breeding with your, you know, your virgin queens and trying to do, do the right thing with that, which makes a lot of sense. Now, you know, drones, you can read a lot of different stories and, and literature on how far they go, but I've heard numbers from you know, three to seven or eight miles away that drones will go sometimes to get to the drone congregating areas. That's one thing to keep in mind. What I would say, my recommendation would be maybe not now necessarily, but maybe in the spring, you know, give it a shot. Try and see if you just do an emergency split, maybe like in the early to mid-May time frame, and see what they come up with. You know, see see how the queen comes back, see if she's able to, you know, produce good brood, and um, if she's healthy and all those things. That it's It's worth trying, but... I think in this case, you know, I, I told Wes, I said, you know, I'll just, I'm, I'm doing some stuff with queens anyway for the next couple of weeks, and I'll just go ahead and, you know, once I get a queen mated, I'll put her in a little mating nuke. I've got these little styrofoam mating nukes that are about, they're about like 10, 12 inches long, 6 inches high, 6 inches wide. There's like three miniature little frames in them. You put some sugar syrup in there, the three miniature frames, like a cup of bees, and a queen cell. Queen hatches from the queen cell. She leaves, gets mated, comes back. And you look at the colony like in about two weeks and you just see, you know, nothing but brood inside that little miniature three-frame nuke and you've got a mated queen. So we'll see if we can get that going and, and help them out. The next question I have is on entrance reducers. And, you know, I had mentioned it in the last episode and I think someone wanted to kind of follow up with, with some more questions on that. So this can be a bit of a like a religious topic with some people and they get a little bit out of shape on it. What I would say is, the majority of the decisions that you make with regard to your colonies are probably just going to be, it's going to come down to something really simple and just how strong is your colony. If you have a really strong colony with a, with good numbers, good population, lots of activity, you can leave the entrance completely open and they're going to be fine. If you have a small nuke, a two frame nuke, a, you know, two, three, four, five frame nuke, and, and it's a new split or it's a new, you know, colony, they may not have as many resources as would be needed to defend. And again, some of that's time of year based too, right? In the spring when there's a good flow on, you don't have issues with robbing typically because there's plenty of nectar in the environment. The bees don't have to take unnecessary risks going in and trying to steal from another colony because there's plenty out there for them to, to get you know, within the environment. It's these times of year that we're about to go into where things can get tricky because your smaller, weaker colonies can become targets for the bigger, stronger ones. My recommendation in general is in the winter, I have reluctantly left the bottom completely open. I was really concerned about this. I was scared about it. I just thought, that's going to be too much air. There's no way it's going gonna, it's gonna to work. Worked fine. I have overwintered a lot of colonies with the entire entrance wide open. I still, it still is not my favorite way to go. So typically what I do almost year round is if you get it, if you buy an entrance reducer, that's fine. They usually have like a three quarter inch or a one inch opening. And then if you flip it a little bit, you can get to like a three inch opening. I like that three inch opening year round. That just seems to work well. And, and that's what I run with. If I'm using like a two or two frame nuke or any other kind of nuke, I go to about an inch, inch and a half. And that's it. 
They don't need any more space than that. The bees will find a way to get in and out. They're very efficient. They're very effective at what they do. So don't get too, you know, bent out of shape because some people will just get so like, oh, you got to give them all kinds of space. They need to be able to move in and out. You're going to reduce their productivity. No, they're going to figure it out. They're going to be fine. Yeah, like I said, I'm sure there's somebody who's going to email me and tell me I'm wrong on that one. But just trust me, if you give them, give them a little bit of space, make it easier for them to defend, right? I mean, if you have the, particularly these smaller colonies, you know, they just need, like I said, three quarters of an inch. They just need enough room to get, you know, base, you know, two bees wide, basically. You got room for some coming in, room for some going out. So don't overthink it. And, and like I was talking about, too, right, when speaking about the strength of the colonies and things like that, it's, it's actually, that's why I recommend people buy two at a time or maybe even three. I mean, I've had colonies that literally sit side by side, you know, a foot and a half, two feet apart. One of them is active. Everything is going great. It's just insane what's going on. The one to the, the other side, it's just sort of okay. And if I was rating them, maybe one would be like a four or a five, and the other one's like a nine or a ten. Side by side, same environment, same conditions, and one of them just has a queen that has just much better genetics. Or, I mean, obviously, there could be something that got into the colony that negatively impacted them. But in general, you know, you, it's not unusual to see different activity, different behavior across different colonies, which is why I think it's always nice to have multiples. But it's also important to remember, too, like that we as the beekeepers, we have a responsibility then to do what's right for them. And quite often, we have this idea in our mind. I know I'm guilty of it over and over again, so I'm not picking on anybody. But where we think, oh, you know, I want to I go ahead and split this colony. They're looking really good. And I didn't for many years understand all of kind of what was going on in the background and just how disruptive it can be. You know, like I, I mentioned earlier, if you split a colony, if I was going to do a split right now and I had I just had no choice but to do it, I would probably leave about 25 or 30% of the resources with the old queen and take about 70% to go with the new colony. Because remember, you're 44 days away from the first bee being born. So if you had a laying queen in that colony that was laying 1,500 bees a day, or I'm sorry, 1,500 eggs a day, then you're missing out on like 50,000, 60,000 bees because you don't have a queen that's that's actively producing in that colony right now. Obviously, you know, times a year make a difference, and you're not going to necessarily have a colony that just goes crazy and raises, you know, 60,000 bees. But what I'm getting at is there's a tremendous amount of productivity that you are completely disrupting, and uh, everything is all about the timing, right? If you're doing that, during the natural time of year when they're swarming and when they themselves are splitting in order to kind of procreate and make more colonies, then that makes a lot more sense than doing it at times when it, when you want to do it versus kind of when nature wants to do it. Okay, the next one I have is from a young lady in uh, British Columbia up in Canada. She has a young daughter, and she's wondering what a good age is to start someone in beekeeping. So I would say my girl's started I think my oldest was about 12 when she started and the middle one didn't want much to do with it and my younger one Phoebe she was she was involved at a pretty young age but what I would say is I think as grown-ups we all know what it's like to get stung by a bee a wasp a yellow jacket and you know I you you remember like you don't forget that as a child and the threshold for pain for kids is much lower obviously, than it is for adults. So my general recommendation on that one would be start with educational things, right? Show her some videos, and maybe if there's a local bee club or if there's any kind of like a local educational kind of thing going on, 
Uh, or if you, if you know somebody who's a beekeeper and that you can kind of be, you know, maybe 20, 30 feet away and watch a few times, like those are, that's how I would start. And that's really kind of at any age when it comes to actually getting into the colony, you know, getting into the hive, doing inspection. I don't, I really only think that you're limited by the child. I mean, four or five years old, if, if the child is capable and they're, they're willing to listen to instructions and they're willing to take their time, then I would think it's very possible. But again, right, even with protective gear, and I've been stung a lot, and a lot of people get stung a lot with protective gear. So that's the biggest thing. That's the biggest factor, I think, that would be, you know, that would determine whether or not you, you'd want her to do that. But there's absolutely nothing wrong with letting her get the education and, um, you know, start trying to just learn more about it and see if it's something maybe she wants to do when she's older. And, uh, you know, I've got old bee suits from when my kids were little. So, I mean, I'm sure there are other beekeepers probably near you that have same situation, right, where they've got leftover things from their kids. And, you know, she can gear up and just go stand a few feet away and watch an inspection and have somebody talk through what's going on. And, you know, 90-plus percent of all the colonies I've ever had have been well-behaved and pretty docile. So, you know, there's nothing wrong with just kind of standing by and observing and and, uh, trying to take it all in. But that's uh, definitely a good thing, and I appreciate you encouraging her on that one. So that's awesome. Next email I have is around Varroa treatment. When should I do it? Is kind of the, the question there. I would say that instead of really targeting a specific time, I would say, um, like, you know, some people say, you should do it every year at this time or whatever. Okay. I mean, as long as you're doing it, right? There are a lot of people that are like, no, I prefer to be all natural. I don't want to, you know, it's like, well, that's great, but your bees are going to die, right? I mean, I know there are some people out there who claim to have like 100% Varroa resistant, you know, bees and things. I'm not saying they don't. I'm just saying that I... I don't have any, and I haven't experienced that myself. There's always tends to be a little bit. But what I would use as kind of the driver for when you need to treat is you get an alcohol wash kit, and you basically, you know, you have a jar that has a little screen on the bottom. You um, It's filled with alcohol. You take a, you know, good-sized cup of bees, get them in the jar, just shake the heck out of it for a long time, you know, and really, really shake it good. And what happens is, of course, the alcohol gets in, the mite that's hooked onto the bee will let go. Um, and then at the bottom below the screen, the little strainer, you'll be able to see some mites at the bottom. And then you'll get a rough idea of how many that you have that can kind of help dictate when you should treat. I personally, I treat in the fall. I always go, I would say, you know, a good target for me is around Labor Day time frame. We have a break in our brood cycle, you know, between, you know, June through August so that helps us to reduce Varroa because, you know, of course, Varroa is reproducing within the brood chamber. But even so, we still have, mites are still present. We still need to make sure we're treating, you know, f- and just figure it out based on, you know, your alcohol washes. And I guess, you know, you could potentially, I haven't read the actual packaging to say that you, you, know, you could treat too much. I mean, I'm sure they would probably tell you not to do a treatment more than so many days, within, you know, within so many days. I got another email where somebody said, hey, like you've mentioned you know, quote unquote, queen rearing several times, you know, what, what exactly does that entail? What is that? So queen rearing is basically the way that I do it anyway, is to take a, a deep and in that deep hive body, I just load it up with nurse bees. I mean, it's basically like capped brood. You re, you've got to pay really close attention. You don't want eggs, larva, 
you know, any of that. You want nothing but capped brood on the frames that you put in there. And you completely load this thing up with nurse bees. Then you go, if you have enough resources to do this, then you go grab a couple of frames from a really strong colony and you shake more nurse bees into it. And then you close it up. It just closes up for, for you know, like two days. Put it in a put it in a cool space, you know, or you know, dark place for a day or so. Let things settle down, and then they'll realize, oh crap, we don't have a queen. But what you're gonna have is this massive, massive number of nurse bees that are ready to go to work. Right? You've got frames in there that are gonna have some little bit of honey in there, so they have some honey and pollen and some resources. But they are just packed with bees, and and that kind of helps to simulate that environment that you would get in the spring when the population goes through the roof and it's time to swarm. And what do you have when it's time to swarm? A whole bunch of nurse bees ready to make queen cells. Then what I do is after they've had a chance to kind of settle in for a couple of days and realize that they don't have a queen, I'll take a frame and this frame is set up for queen cells. And what I do is I take them, they have these little, little cups in them and they're nailed all across you know, the whole tub. There's different ways of doing it. You can nail them down. You can, you know, some of them have little pieces of wood that you kind of break off. But what, basically what you end up with is these little cups and you can probably do about 10 or so across each frame and three deep. So about 30 of them per frame, roughly. I've seen people do more. I've seen people do less. But I usually drop those in there for, you know, about a day or two just so that the bees can kind of go over them and kind of polish it up and clean it up and you know, do whatever they want to do to make sure that everything is kind of cleaned up and, and they're happy with it. Then you go to whatever colony that you want to go to, that you want to uh, breed queens from. You know, in my case, I've got like my breeder queen. She's the best one, and that's who I would use. But I would go into that colony, pull a frame out that has a bunch of very young larvae. And I, I mean, just you're looking for a really small larva that is sitting in a pool of royal jelly. That's exactly what you want. And then as you get older, you put on some glasses. Maybe if you're young enough, you, you don't need to. But you put on some regular, you know, some reading glasses. Or the, I actually have some magnifiers that have a three and a ten times lens I can drop in, but you hold the frame, put a good light on it, and you use a grafting tool. And there's a couple different ones out there that I've used. Uh, there's a bamboo one that has just this little sliver that comes out, and you can kind of slide up underneath the larva, uh, and then you drop the larva into that little queen cup that you had put into the, uh, you know, the queen rearing deep for that day or two. So you basically drop the little larva in, you go to the next cell. You kind of scoop it out and do the same thing. There's other ways of getting them out. There's a couple of different grafting tools, but you're basically, and you can watch, there's tons of videos on YouTube on how to do this, but you basically get as much, as many of those larvae out, you know, as you can to fill up all of those grafting cells that you have in your frame. Once they're all in there, you go back to the colony, you drop that in there and you walk away. Now what's going to happen now is all those nurse bees that are in that colony that you've set up for queen rearing, they're going to they're gonna go nuts. They're going to swarm all over those, um, those larvae, and they're going to start drawing up queen cells because they know they're queenless, and they've got these larvae. It's time to go to work. They will draw everything up. They will continue to feed them. They'll create the queen cells. And then, you know, depending on how you do things and, and your processes, you can kind of, you know, formulate your strategy as to how you, how you do it. Some people just leave it in the same place. You know, they come back around day 12 or 13, and they go ahead and make plans to move those cells into other colonies because, you know, by day 16, you're going to get a queen. So you really want to have those queen cells out, in my opinion, two weeks later. So if you're doing your grafting on Saturday or Sunday, 
two weeks later, you want to be pulling those graphs out and getting them in, into uh, other colonies. Another thing you can also do, too, though, is you can put a queen cage around them so that in the event that you had to leave them in there for an extra day or so, they can actually be born, go into the queen cage, and just be waiting for you when you're ready to get them out. So when I say queen rearing, that's that's my approach. It's very effective. Uh, gets nice, good, healthy queen cells. That's the way that I would recommend doing it. So, folks, that's all I've got for today. And it's kind of a hodgepodge of information and different kind of random things, but I wanted to make sure I got to all those emails. I hope everyone enjoys the rest of the weekend. And we got high school graduation coming up next week. A lot of busy stuff going on. I may be a little bit behind. I got some family coming into town to uh, celebrate that with my middle daughter. But I'll do the best I can to get some more content out here very shortly. I owe you videos, and I will definitely get to them ASAP as well. If you have any questions, please feel free to hit me up, Jeff at beekeepingfornewbies.com. Take care, everybody, and we'll talk to you soon. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.